So we're pleased to, to start with our, our next speaker, um, and this is the first of our insurance-related slots. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to welcome Herman um, from QED. Herman is a risk actuary, FRM holder, and is currently studying economics through the London School of Economics. He heads up the Enterprise Risk and Capital Management Division at QED, um, providing risk and capital management services for a number of clients, both within South Africa and across the rest of Africa. Herman started his career at The Regulator um, a few years ago um, and currently has more than 14 years' experience in risk management, insurance, banking, employee benefits and financial regulation. So I think, uh, yeah, so, so for the sake of time, I'll, I'll run through a few slides, so um, I will stick to my limit. Um, but I think for today's presentation, um, so what I've realized as risk professionals is the, always the um, temptation for us to get focused on compliance with, I think, just with the barrage of all the regulations being thrown our way. And we often f lose perspective of, I think, our main stakeholder, which is our shareholder. Um, and today, specifically the angle I want to take is how do we use liquidity risk management to, sh to support our main shareholder objectives of firstly value creation and secondly value protection. And the other component we'll look at is also just how to allow for the external environment when we do stress testing. Okay, so I think there's three existential questions that we need to ask with um, liquidity risk management in order to understand it. And um, the first one, what exactly is liquidity risk? What do we mean by it? Um, and secondly, should we worry about it? Um, I think we all accept as in the banking industry, that's the main risk that you are focused on, that insolvency. But I think for long as insurers, we thought um, we've got different profiles, so we don't really have to worry about it. So I'm just asking that question again. So a lot has changed, I think, in the last 10 years. Um, so... We'll get back to that now. And thirdly, just a practical way out to manage liquidity risk. Um, and then finally, we'll look at the benefits of tiering liquidity um, or your liquid assets, very similar to the way we currently tier our capital. Okay. So the first question is, um, what is liquidity risk? And I actually thought of an analogy, so I'm, I'm going to use a real-world example. Uh, uh, from mountaineering, and a year ago, I attempted this mountain. Um, I think attempts is a bit of an overstatement, but we'll get back to that now. So the altitude is 7,100, and it's basically on the border of um, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, and it's part of the Pamir mountain range. And it's also called one of those five snow leopards. So in the former Soviet Union, there were five 7,000ers, 7, and if you climb all of them, you get this coveted award. Um, first successful summit in 1928 by a Soviet-German expedition. And um, I think the main thing on this mountain is it's not that technical. Um, and your main risk is actually avalanches. So every couple of years, there's a major avalanches. A couple of climbers perish in the process. Um, the most notable one was in 1990. And in the region, there was an earthquake which triggered a larger than usual avalanche. Um, and as a result of that, an uh, entire hike camp similar to this was buried completely. Um, 40 plus people perished um, and the thing is I think you know when you climb this mountain it's not very technical and that's your main risk that you need to be concerned about. I, I see all have confused faces but I do have a point. Um, <clears throat> so I, I'm quickly so two years ago so um, my Russian guide Katja she took this video of Avalon so the year before I went 
And just, um, I think the first thing, if you see those small little black dots there at the bottom, those are actually climbers. Um, and I think just before I play the video, I just want to, just so nobody is upset, all of them somehow survived. Um, it's, it's, all, it's unheard of, but um, they did. So, so there's a Russian guy shouting a lot of things, um, so luckily the, the sound doesn't work. So a year later, let's look at my experience. Um, so it was a bit of a misadventure from the start. Um, literally the day I arrived, so I set off from Johannesburg, uh, two-day flights to get into Kyrgyzstan, and when I arrived in Osh, the guides actually told me that my gear, you can see a little picture of just the technical gear, was stuck in customs in Moscow, and the first week I'll be without that. So all my medication, all my gear, all my clothing, literally everything was in that bag. So the day before I had to go to market, find a military outlet store, and at least try to replace the basic things. So the first week we were below the snow line, so um, luckily you could still get away with that. Um, I did look like a, a military man from the Kyrgyz army, um, where that's lost a lot of weight because everything was um, oversized. Um, and things just went worse from there, so I dropped my, my camera on its lens on a glacier, um, stepping up a hill, my cool army pants tore in the middle, that was my only pair for the week. Um, so a lot of awkward times in the kitchen. And also, um, so I also got food poisoning, um, which materialized on one of those cliffs. I was told not to share too much details. Um, I could just say that, um, yeah, rather not. Um, so the next week I spent in that yellow tent just recovering um, from food poisoning, dehydration, um, extremely hot. And the day before we were supposed to go up to the higher camp, my luggage arrived, but unfortunately, the food poisoning and dehydration and fever turned as well. Um, and it got so bad when the doctor saw me, he realized it was life-threatening and I needed to get off the mountain as soon as possible. Luckily, if you see that little guy on the horse, they, they bought the luggage from base camp to advanced base camp. And luckily, they just arrived with the luggage and they said they can get me off quite quickly. So four hours later, very awkward horse ride. Um, I think it's probably the most exciting part of the whole trip. I arrived back in base camp, two injections in the backside, and spent the night on a drip. Okay, so what's the point again? Um, so we're getting closer to it. So mountaineers, they've got a very, very basic risk classification framework. So for them, risk is anything that can kill you on the mountain. It's as simple as that. And then they subdivide it into two different types of risks. The first one is your objective hazards. So that's your objective risks. And that's basically the environment that you're exposed to. That's nothing, you can't really do anything about that. So that's avalanches, rock falls, lightning. You can't prepare for those things. Secondly, we've got, we have subjective risks or subjective hazards, and that is specific to your climber. So that's acute mountain sickness, uh, dehydration, overexertion, or just personal error. So the point is that liquidity risk behaves in the same way. So let's quickly, back to our question, what is liquidity risk? So I'll just read out this definition um, and just quickly summarize the other two. It's, it's basically the risk that you've got insufficient liquid assets available to meet your funding or your cash flow requirements, or that you will have to um, convert your non-liquid assets into liquid assets at an excessive cost. But then you can further subdivide that into funding risk, and this is in our mountaineering analogy, that's your internal risk. And that's basically just the risk that you don't have funding to pay your policyholders, or as I said, you can only raise it as an excessive cost. So that's your internal risk. 
So your object of risk, and this is something, so as insurers, we can get away from the other one, but this one we can't get away from. And this is market liquidity risk. That's what the whole financial market is exposed to at the same time. And that's difficult in, in transacting your financial instruments when you need it due to inadequate market depth or breadth and or a market disruption. We see this a lot with our African clients. Um, they're really limited in what they can invest in. So those are your two risk types. So let's quickly look at the principles that governs behavior. And again, for the lack of time, I won't go into all of them. I just want to maybe speak quickly about just a couple of them. So the first one, it's not your fault, but it's still your problem. I think we've established that principle. You can't get away from this, even if you've got a very sound liquidity risk management process. Um, secondly, and the banks really realize this, you've got more liquidity, you've got more liquidity than you need until you don't. Um, and that also speaks to, to number six is, or where's the other one? But it basically means that Liquidity can, very, can dry up quite quickly. Um, and the third one is too much liquidity risk will kill you quickly, too little will kill you slowly. And this is also one of the main themes of this presentation, and I think where it applies to us. Um, liquidity risk is operational and consequential. I am going to speak about this principle later. Um, number five is regulation is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Definitely not on the insurance side. And six for me is a key one. Scenario analysis is, is the language of liquidity. We have to assess our liquidity risk under adverse scenarios. Um, seven is an interesting one, is liquidity risk net zero for the system as all. Well. And that basically says that if there's market liquidity risk, um, you, you can't reduce the overall liquidity risk in the market. You can only move it around. So if there is a severe market disruption, you have, actually need to attend to this through your external stakeholders. And that's where the... The Reserve Bank as the lender of last resort comes in. Um, and I don't think I really need to talk about the other principles. Okay, so the important question, as we know, is that our shareholders, um, they're very much about having limited resources and making the most of it. And should they really be being, being allocating scarce financial resources and scarce management time to this process? So let's first look at the banks. So as we said, is that in the banks, the reason the liquidity risk is much higher, we'll quickly just touch on this slide. Um, so what the banks do is they actually, so they take our short-term liquid low-risk assets in the forms of our savings, very, very low risk, and we take it to the bank. And then the former, one of the previous governors of the Bank of England, he, he spoke about this process called financial and risk alchemy. So something happens in the bank and when that asset leaves the bank um, in the form of loans, it's changed completely. So suddenly that, that same savings we took now is in the market in the form of long-term illiquid high-risk assets in the forms of long-term loans to fund our mortgages, businesses, um, etc. Okay, so I think this is an important principle. So if you, um, so it's basically a principle of energy that you can't create or destroy energy. You can basically only transfer it or transform it. And this happens in liquidity risk as well, is the banks change the, the risk profile of that, but there are consequences. And the first one is that the risk is actually being transformed into liquidity risk within the bank. And then it's also transferred into the system as a whole. Um, I don't want to bash banks, they do provide a lot of value to our system, but 
without the support of the Reserve Bank, they, they just have too much risk to actually justify the business model. Okay, so I don't want to talk about the other systemic factors which just exacerbates liquidity risk in the financial system as a result of the banking system. Um, let's go to the insurance industry. So our traditional insurers, um, so the view is that there's less liquidity risk, and it's definitely true, and it's because more, it's more stable as a result of premiums being received in advance. And our insurance companies only have to make payments in the event of a contingent of event occurring. And that earned premium of the premiums um, cannot actually be recouped. And actually, our solo entities are prohibited from using leverage. Um, so we'll get back to that now on a group leverage, a group level. Okay, so general insurance covers mostly annual, and a large proportion of the assets are mainly in highly liquid assets, which provides a good match in terms of liquidity. Um, what we've seen a lot is maybe a lot of GI insurers have too much liquidity risk, but we'll get back to that now. And for general insurers, liquidity risk mainly arises from catastrophe events, large single losses, and a concentration of investments. And that is managed mainly through your reinsurance and risk transfer me mechanisms. Um, your life insurance covers more long-term, um, lower proportion of liquid assets, just because the ALM plays a bigger role for life insurers. Um, and liquidity risk here mainly arises from, I think, the ease at which your policies can be surrendered, and also just a mass lapse from a re reputational event. Um, investment activities are actually quite important, again, because of ALM. And again, your dependency on reinsurers and concentration of investments. Okay, so, but the world has become more complex. I think we're all in agreement about that, is there's increased complexity in the group structure, but also in terms of the products that we sell. Um, we've seen our larger insurance groups actually using leverage, so not just shareholders' equities to enhance returns. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but you, there is additional risk that you need to manage as a result of that. Credit risk insurance is a, a tricky product. Um, and very important is our exposure to the external environment. So I spoke about a lot of the subjective risks. Now let's look at the external environment. So no insurer acts in, in isolation. So firstly, we are all exposed to the banking system um, through our deposits and investments. And also a lot of our larger groups and even medium groups have some, some form of bank within that group. And a liquidity risk in the bank can quickly become an issue for the insurance company as well. Um, the reinsurance industry, so they reduce a lot of liquidity risk, but the reality is also a default of one of the larger insurers would have a significant liquidity impact on the entire industry. And the reinsurers are really focusing on this. Um, and also interesting is also our ex exposure to the monetary policy and also exchange rates. Um, for instance, if we looked at what happened in Zimbabwe, the monetary policy collapsed, a very sound insurance industry, but the savings of individuals and insurance companies were wiped out. There's nothing they could do about that. Um, other events that could generate liquidity risk, um, political instability. Um, we spoke about that this morning. Um, another financial crisis, so more a short-term shock, but I think even more, more um, dangerous is a prolonged financial depression. And an interesting scenario is the debasement of the US US dollar as the global reserve currency. If that happens, there is going to be immediate shock. So 
if you look at the history of currency, um, it changes every couple of decades or centuries. Um, but it's very likely that this could happen. We're just assuming that we're going to stay on the US dollar. But if you look at the activities of the Russians and the Chinese, they're kind of fed up with US and they're already stockpiling gold reserves. So that could be an indication of them anticipating return to the gold standard. Um, but I think that's a topic on its own. Um, so I think I've, I've harbored this point, but a significant portion of our liquidity risk sits outside of our insurance companies, if not most. Okay, so even after this, if we're still not concerned, the, re the reality is regulators are concerned. Um, the 2008 crisis was mainly viewed as a liquidity crisis. I don't want to go, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think one thing the regulators realized is that traditionally the focus, even on the banking side, was more on solvency. And after 2008, they realized that liquidity is actually a major risk in the industry that's not received attention. Even the banks, the liquidity coverage ratio and a lot of liquidity regulations only got introduced after 2008. Uh, and recently our own regulators also started focusing on this, both on the banking side and the insurance side. Um, I'm just gonna skip through these slides, uh, if that's okay. Just a couple of things that the Prudential Authority does to do it. Okay, so now to the interesting part is how is liquidity risk um, managed? So if we look at the risk identification processes, basically two processes we rely on to identify liquidity risk. So the first one is, um, all your risk managers would be comfortable with this, is the risk and control self-assessment. So that's just the process to get a risk register. And the secondly one, second process is cash flow analysis. And that's actually where a lot of focus of liquidity management is. And summarizing here is that the RCSA or your risk register focuses on managing the likelihood and severity of that risk occurring. But cash flow analysis says that we can't control all of these events. So let's assume worst case scenarios. How do we manage the, the fallout from that? And that's for the remainder of the, this presentation. That's sort of where I'm going to focus. Okay, so cash flow analysis, it basically just assesses the the liquid assets that's currently available to meet future liquidity strain under our expected projections and also under stressed scenarios. And this can be expressed as liquidity shortfall indicator, which the regulator on the insurance side introduced. So it just measures what's the, um, the amount of available liquid assets we have today to meet the funding requirements over the two, uh, over the future period. I think it's also important to just to, to appreciate sort of the two different timelines. So there's a time zero assessment of available liquid assets and projected assessment of our cash flow requirements. So in terms of risk management, I'm not too fond of nominal measures. I do prefer ratios, and you can actually quite easily decompose that into our liquidity coverage ratio. And basically, I'm not gonna go into that adjustment, but basically the, the liquidity coverage ratio in one sentence says, or it asks the questions, do I have enough available liquid assets today to meet my funding requirements over the next 12 months? So if that ratio is in a dish over one, then you've got adequate available liquid assets. If it's less than one, then you need to raise additional liquidity over the projection period. Okay, so what do we include in available liquid assets? So it's, I think this is three slides, but if you get this wrong, the credibility of your whole model is basically um, gone. So what is our liquidity buffer? So it's just the amount of assets that we are confident we can sell or pledge 
in an adverse liquidity scenario and that we want to maintain to act as a buffer against possible liquidity strains. So the question is, what can we put in our liquidity chest? I think it's quite simple. We can include cash. But also um, bonds and equities, can we include it in there? So um, what I'm saying is after allowing for conservative air cuts, you can actually allow it in your liquidity buffer. Um, we'll get to that during the tiering section as well. Okay, so the funding requirement, that's a bit more tricky, um, but not too complicated once you're familiar with the process. And so what we're saying is our funding requirements are just our expected cash flows over the next 12 months, allowing for cash inflows and cash outflows. And how we do this is we use the process called liquidity gap analysis. So firstly, a funding matrix is populated. I'll just give a simplified example of that. And then we'll have detailed funding requirements for each maturity over the projected period. And um, we use all our cash flows, so our liability and asset, asset cash flows, and also our off-balance off -balance sheet cash flows are also included. And then we calculate a net funding gap for each period, basically based on the anticipated mismatches between cash inflows and outflows. Okay, so just a simplified illustration of that. So here you can see the first part of the matrix. Um, the columns are basically just your next 12 months. Um, we're starting at month zero. And that, then we project our total cash inflows and our total cash outflows. And our finance department will be able to provide us with this basic projection. And then after that, we calculate the funding requirements. So that's just your net position. Um, and you can see the cumulative funding requirement is what we used in our liquidity coverage ratio calculation. And this is just what a funding gap profile would look like. And then after we've calculated our funding requirements, so up till this point, we've actually agree, ignored our available liquid assets. So now we bring our buffer into the picture, so the top part of the LCR ratio. And then we actually plot that over the projected period as well. Um, so obviously cash at time zero, you look at your bonds um, by maturity, and then after you've got this in the, in the equation, you actually have your net funding gap. Um, and just very important, so this is under expected scenario, but now you want to basically stress your funding matrix under all your various stresses that you think are likely. So, and you'll apply that to the cash flow specifically. So you want to you wanna leave your available liquid assets outside of the stress testing. But then as a second step, you want a separate stress to apply to your available liquid assets, seeing that it is a key component. So it's, it's very important to treat them separately. Okay, so let's look at the, just a few of the key measures. Um, so the first one is, you'll see there your liquidity coverage ratio prof profile, and that's just your liquidity coverage ratio per stress. So we've got our base LCR, and then also our LCR under the different stresses. Um, so the dark blue line is our heart level. So if you're below one, you don't have adequate liquid assets. Um, and the bottom appetite is basically what your board will set. And I think what's also very important is that you also set an upper appetite. So I think it's important that we also, um, we'll look at the cost of excess liquidity. Survival arise, and that just basically speaks, so what that's saying is we don't have enough li liquidity, but how long do we have to fix that problem? Okay, so now let's look at the last section, the benefits of tiering liquid assets. So after the liquidity buffer is quantified, tiering is required to calculate the required 
liquidity versus excess liquidity, the cost and opportunity, the opportunity cost and real cost of dormant liquidity needs to be assessed. And we also need to inform our asset composition. And we also need to derive a liquidity risk appetite and if a liquidity injection is required. So firstly, our expected liquidity requirements. So this just speaks to the tiering. So that's just the cash flows that we know that we'll need. After that, we stress our funding matrix, and now we've got a stressed liquidity requirement, and we add that to the expected liquidity requirement. And these two together is our liquidity requirement. The next step is now we actually have a view of what our excess liquidity is under each stress. So the, the exercise is performed for each scenario, but we still need a consolidated view of our liquidity exposure to understand if liquidity injections are required, um, the cost of dormant liquid assets needs to be assessed, and our optimal liquid assets, um, it will also inform what's the optimal composition of our liquidity buffer. And liquidity risk appetite is a key enabler. Okay, so this is a typical risk appetite statement for our company in terms of liquidity. So they use LCR. We'll get to the generalized LCR now. And basically what they're saying is the qualitative statement. We should have adequate liquidity to meet our liquidity requirements under all stress scenarios. Okay, how do we convert that into a quantitative risk appetite statement? And this is what we refer to as the generalized liquidity risk, um, or generalized LCR. And not a very complicated formula, but basically the GLCR is just the minimum LCR under all stresses, including our regulatory LCR and also our expected LCR. And now we've got a quantitative liquidity risk appetite statement. And what we're saying is the company should ensure that the GLCR is greater than one. Or more simply, our, in simpler terms, we should ensure that our LCR exceeds one under all stress scenarios. Basically the same thing. Okay, so our liquidity risk appetite actually informs our company's overall liquidity requirement. Okay, so once we have that, we can actually have a mature view of what's the excess liquidity in our organization. And, and the other side is if our liquidity requirement exceeds our actual available liquid assets, then we need a liquidity injection. And the side of, size of liquidity injection is just to get our GLCR back to one. Okay, but in the case where we've got excess liquidity, we actually need to um, assess for the cost of dormant liquidity. And just a simple illustration, so what's the expected earnings from investing in cash? Um, but the real question we actually should be asking is what are our expected real earnings and what's the opportunity cost of keeping our excess liquid assets in a safe investment liquid assets? So let's use a SA insurer. They've got 100 million of excess assets. They allocate all of that to liquid assets or to cash. After 10 years, they've earned 0%, but they've preserved that. But what's the real cost? So at an annual inflation rate of 5.5%, they've actually destroyed real value of 58 million or um, of 42 million rand. So the real value is now 58 million. More importantly, what is opportunity cost? If the same company invested those liquid assets, in the JSE, I know it's a simplified example, they would have earned 278%. So the opportunity cost they paid is 180 million. And the question I'm asking is, which one of these two companies are better able to withstand an adverse scenario? So which one is really the, the safer company? And just summarizing this, just before we look at the tiering of assets, is investing in cash as zero nominal cost, but a material real cost. 
um, and an even larger opportunity cost. Okay. Um, and I think just so, I'll just conclude with the next two slides. I think this is a very important thing is that uh, so that's a French term for misstep, is that we often think that a cash investment strategy is a good capital preservation strategy, and that's definitely not the case in adverse conditions. And by, by actually having a mature liquidity risk management process, so the first one is, um, so I won't go into the exact details of this, or let's maybe move to the conclusion. Um, so having a mature liquidity risk management process actually helps us to answer this question is, should we be concerned about liquidity risk? And flying blindly in terms of liquidity risk, so the first one is, it does threaten our going concern. But for insurers, I think the more important question is that it actually, um, the cost of excess liquidity, there's a real and opportunity cost relates it to that. And, and this just speaks back to our, our using liquidity risk to, to basically link back to our shareholders' objectives of value protection, but also value creation. Okay, is that okay? Thanks. Um, any questions? Um, so I'd, I'd, I'd phrase that more politically. So I've worked at a number of consulting firms and I also worked at the regulator. So I've had a, a large spread of exposure. So not specifically our clients only, but I think the larger insurers, they've, they've got a decent handle on it, but I can't speak for all of them. So at least they are looking at this. But I think in terms of the mid-tier and the lower-tier insurers, I think there's still a lot that needs to be done. Um, and you can see that, especially, as I said, with GR insurers having all their investment assets in cash. Um, that really says that they aren't looking at liquidity risk. Okay, thank you. Herman, just before you go away, a small token of appreciation for, for preparing your, your slides and your talk. Thank you, thank you so much. <laughs>